Hi, this is Bob Groves. We have another episode of the podcast series Faculty and Research here at Georgetown. We have a treat this time with Meg Letta-Jones, who's an associate professor in the what we call the CCT program, which is Communication, Culture, and Technology. She has, for some years, researched rules and technological change with a particular focus on privacy, memory, innovation, and the effects of automation in, in digital information and computing technologies. She spreads her energy across a lot of different activities. She's a core faculty member in the Science, Technology, and International Affairs program in the School of Foreign Service. She's a faculty affiliate in uh, the Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy at the Georgetown Law Center. She's also one of the founding members of the of the Center for Digital Ethics, just emerging at Georgetown. And then she's a faculty fellow at the Georgetown Ethics Lab. So she's involved in a lot of different activities simultaneously. Her first book was Control Z, The Right to Be Forgotten. And it's about social, legal, and technical issues surrounding digital oblivion. We might want to probe that in our, our discussion. And her second book is entitled The Character of Consent. The history of cookies and the future of technology policy. And this is addressing the transatlantic history of digital consent through the lens of a familiar technical object. She's also involved in editing other books and a variety of other scholarly activities. So, first of all, Meg, welcome to Faculty and Research. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me. So maybe we ought to begin with what I suggested, this fact that you're involved in a lot of different research groups on Georgetown, perhaps more than most of our colleagues. And I'm I'm interested in why do you find this fulfilling? What's interesting about the different groups? And how do you how do you allocate your time when you're juggling all those balls? I think that a lot of people often have affiliations on their websites or CVs that are kind of surfacey, but all of the things that you just listed, I really mean and commit myself to spending time with those people. And it's not much of a commitment. It's really a joy. There's different justifications, but they all start with the same thing, which is an email to get coffee with somebody. <laughs> I really love talking to people. I think of research and teaching and, you know, the whole world is one big, interesting conversation. And so over my time here at Georgetown, at this point, I rarely feel like I meet a new person. I very early on reached out to STIA because it seemed like there were people there to have interesting conversations with, and there absolutely were. And they had kind of a need for somebody to hang around that was working in computers. So they do really, really different, varied aspects of science and technology. And so that was that was easy. And I teach in their daily a required class that's kind of set up in like modules where different faculty members teach different parts, you know, and it's three weeks. And I came up with this assignment that I absolutely love where the final assignment for my module, the students come up with like a parody skit of a technology that we call a Franken technology, where they put two technologies together and then have to have it perform like it's most nefarious functionality. And so they make these things and they're just so funny and the students are so great. It's a wonderful couple of, uh, of weeks. And 
you know, maybe at the beginning it was like extra work, but to set it up. And, but I, you know, work in an area that's is technology. So it's always changing. You know, it's part of my job to always be changing and to be thinking about these, uh, these things and to be talking about them. And then the ethics lab has been an absolute boon for me. We've done research projects together. It's like this magic place where I feel like if I have a crazy idea, I walk straight to the ethics lab <laughs> with it. And, and it's it gets transformed into like a less crazy real idea that, than we actually do. Uh, and so that's been research projects, Fritz fellowships, which we, you know, we can talk more about later courses, all kinds of things that we're able to put together. And then at Georgetown, we can actually pull off. And that's similar to what happens at the Institute for Technology, Law and Policy, where there are just great conversations. You know, it's it's where all of the magic happens, talking, talking to those people. And somebody will say just the most interesting thing that I'll spend two weeks thinking about. And at the end of it, we'll turn it into a conference or something like that. Uh, And I think that the Center for Digital Ethics will have a lot of that built into the infrastructure. So you came here with these interests in mind, and indeed your graduate education is an interesting mix that I think uh, our listeners would like to know about. So how did you wander into this mix of things? Yeah, not by like a childhood dream or lifelong passions. My scholarly origins are all from the same place uh, that all my other origins come from, which is rural, central Illinois. And the first time I'd ever really thought about research was in law school at the University of Illinois, where I'd also done my undergraduate degree. And I grew up like 40 miles into the cornfield from there. So in my second year of law school, I took this class taught by a psychologist, an economist, and a philosopher, which sounds like the beginning of a great joke. Maybe that's what it is. But I think they were all legal scholars of some kind. Like, presumably, they had law degrees. I'm I'm not really sure. I don't remember it that well. But we thought about how law changes if you're trying to do different things. So if you're trying to make policy to make people happy, or you're trying to create efficient choices or create markets, or you're trying to achieve some type of morality, the law is quite different under those goals, those values. And I hadn't really gone to law school to be a lawyer exactly, though I admire American lawyers tremendously. But I'd actually gone because my dad told me that law school would push my brain to like its limits. It would be so challenging. And I was like, well, this sounds like a trip, you know, like I gotta sign up for this. I did, but this class did something special to my brain. It lit it up in ways that were about creating new knowledge. And I just loved it. And I wanted to do more of it. And I wanted to get good at it. Like the paper I did was pretty bad, you know? (laughs) And so I wanted to. I don't know, I wanted to get good at creating in this way. And so I applied for PhD programs with no plan at all. And so I looked for PhD programs that claimed some kind of interdisciplinarity in technology and society. The paper I had had worked on for that class was on net neutrality and music, meaning if you change the rules for how stuff goes across the internet pipes, what type of content might people create and want over those 
And like I said, the paper was pretty bad, but I uh, was looking for interdisciplinary programs in technology and society stuff. And I didn't know information schools existed. I didn't know anything about communications. I didn't know what was happening in CS. I never heard of media studies, but I found this program called Technology, Media, and Society at the University of Colorado. And there were no faculty in ATLAS, which is an acronym for something and sits inside the engineering school there. Instead, there are faculty fellows listed on the website. And one such fellow was the author of like the principal book that I and everyone reads on internet regulation. And that is Phil Weiser. So Phil was like sort of assigned to me, but he's such an important figure in internet regulation that he left to work for the Obama administration a couple of like a year or two after I was there. So all of these like previous events needed to happen to get me from A to B and are clearly just like happy accidents and not some kind of master plan. But the next happy accident is one that really matters, which is I found a mentor to apprentice me, an incredible mentor to apprentice me. And you know him, our friend and colleague, Paul O. So Paul and I met over coffee for like an hour. And at the end of it, he was like, sure, I think if you want to put the time and work in I can turn you into a privacy expert. And I was like, well, this kind of seems like what I was doing before. Like, it's all about who controls the bits and why, you know, who controls the bits of personal information. Isn't that different than like who controls what information, what bits go across a network or what bits make up a platform and how they're structured. And I think I'm still Paul's only PhD student, the only PhD student that he's ever had. And he's like most law professors, he doesn't have a PhD. He's never gone through it. And so it didn't really matter. We figured it out and sort of like stapled it together and pasted over things and figured it, (laughs) figured it out. Uh, with the help of a lot of really wonderful colleagues in in the engineering department. Um, But really, with the exception of a couple of years that I was here at Georgetown before Paul arrived here, we've been scheming for like 13 years now. And those relationships are really just everything. So yeah, everybody ended up okay in the story. I got this job that I love at CCT. Paul just finished up an associate deanship at Georgetown Law Center. And Bill Weiser is the Attorney General of Colorado. So everyone's doing doing all right. (laughs) What a great story. It illustrates from an academic viewpoint about your choice of interests really requiring uh, the combination of knowledge domains across traditional schools and and disciplines and, and so on. So for some of our colleagues, this, you know, the passion they feel for their research doesn't always match the obligations they have in in teaching. They feel a little conflict between them. And that's not true of all of our colleagues. How how do you view that, the fact that you, you have to worry about instructing the next generation, but you also want to keep your research? What's the secret? Well, the secret is really to work at a place like Georgetown. That's my secret. So Georgetown encourages you to uh, teach your research, to teach your passions. And so I think that there's just some like inherent recognition that that makes people better teachers and better researchers. And so I've always gotten to teach classes that are very much the stuff I'm reading and the stuff that I always need to be really confident 
in, meaning I've taught a class on comparative privacy. I teach a foundational class in what's called digital law and policy. But what I found really exciting is making up new stuff. And you can't do that everywhere, but we've done it here. And so two examples of that, Paul and I, over a couple of years, started this Masters of, in Law and Technology. And it's just such a cool program. And I know so many people would love to create it, but it's just institutionally really, really hard. And we had a bunch of people motivated to pull this off. And so what it is, is it's a essentially a one-year crash course in law for technologists or people who are, you know, have some sort of like technology background. And we share, CCT and the Law Center share the responsibility of providing and mentoring those students. But it meets a really important demand and a really, it gets at a really important problem that we've been aware of for a long time, which is policymakers need technologists but there's like a pipeline problem. It's a chicken and egg problem, you know, like we can train them if there are jobs, but there's no jobs until people are trained for them. And so because we're in DC and we have these really strong relationships to policymakers right there, we can utilize that to set up at least some early pipelines to to get people into some really exciting, cool positions with this degree. But it was pretty hard to set up. Law schools are kind of islands on universities. And it was it was totally doable. At no point was anyone like, that's going to be really hard for us to figure out how to do. Stop doing it. Everyone was like, you know what, we'll call so and so and we'll we'll figure out how the credits and the register and the calendars don't match. Right. Like there's all kinds of things that I didn't have <laughs> never thought of uh, that were hard. And, you know, training those students allows us to think about and talk about what type of technical expertise we need in policymaking settings and why, right? Which is a research question, which is something that we're spending tons of time on. Paul and I are also, have also started we, this got a little ahead of us, got a little ahead of us. So we we had this idea that we would try to create the equivalent of law school clinics for non-lawyers. So we wanted to train interdisciplinary teams of students to get at technology policy questions, issues, in the way that law schools, Georgetown in particular, I think Georgetown is like the birthplace of this, had set up law school clinics to train lawyers Uh, law students to be lawyers with real clients. And so Paul and I had this idea, we'll set up this clinic lab thing, and we will work with actual partners that have technology issues. And we got funding from the Public Interest Technology University Network, and we got some generous funding from the Fritz Fellowship to prototype this. But because we had written up these applications and people had viewed them, we got emails from partner organizations in the fall, well before we were ready to do anything saying, hey, we have, we've got projects for your students. And we're like, we don't have any students. We haven't built this yet. So we very quickly hired some students and worked on this great project with the Center for Democracy and Technology on trying to get municipal voting outlets to use .gov instead of all the other .net, .coms to help with legitimacy and to mark them as like clearly the official source of voting information. And so we did this and the Washington Post picked it up and I was like, Paul, we have to name our lab because now's the time. It's like, (laughs) we don't do it. 
we don't know it now, we're wasting this. So it's called the Foo Law Lab and we're planning to teach it next spring. But every spring we get to have a new research project that has impact for somebody right in front of us, training our students. And again, we're co-teaching it. We couldn't do it anywhere else. And so and the, tell us about the students. These are JD students as well as others or? Yes, we think we, we aren't scheduled. We're prototyping it this semester. So we're paying students to be our guinea pigs, basically, but we'll launch it next spring. And, and the idea will be that it's cross campus graduate students or, or high, probably we will let in undergrads with that are, you know, have some sophisticated technical or, or, or substantive knowledge in the in the subject area. But yeah, the idea is that we want everybody, uh, everybody we can take. Sounds great. Sounds amazing. I see you're working on a new volume called Feminist Cyber Law. Tell us a little about that work and how that fits into the larger domain you're interested in. I have two books that are like out for review, which is a very unsettling time for me. I do not, I do not like that. But uh, so I have this book that you mentioned on the history of digital consent and cookies, and and Amanda Lewandowski, who is just an incredible scholar, faculty teacher over in the law center. She's a clinical faculty member, and she and I have this edited volume called Feminist Cyber Law that's really intended to kind of launch a subfield. And it captures and articulates and, and hopefully fosters an exploration of how gender, race, sexuality, disability, and class shape cyberspace, shape technical environments, and the laws that govern it. So those essays are in it up review. It is an incredible volume. I mean, it is truly like shaking things up. It was such a joy to read. And it it fits with another project, another Georgetown collaboration. This is another sort of big project that we're just is sort of picking up steam now, Paul and a colleague, Julie Cohen, um, that's about totally redesigning what we call the governance stack. And that has great Georgetown funding attached to it. And it's a big one. It Even talking about it makes me a little like sweaty at the collar. Like it's a multi-year, we're going to redo the whole thing. It's ambitious. It's not an edited volume. You know, we're trying to really find consensus and to establish a blueprint, like a working blueprint for governing technology in a wholly different different way. So that project is in front of me at all times. Uh, and then, of course, I'm working on starting like my next writing project, which I think is about family privacy. And I've started with looking at genealogy and ancestry.com and how that shapes the way that we think about family and the types of settings that are there and how information is shared and the genetic component adds something really complicated to it. But the best thing about that project is everyone has a crazy ancestry story. I It is my favorite. It's my favorite thing to tell people I'm working on this because they'll say, yeah, you know, my uncle did that. And I found out I had a brother or like we found out we had this grandpa who was like a bootlegger, who, you know, like it, it's blues have the best stories. So I'm capturing capturing that energy and trying to pack it into something scholarly. Well, I tell you what, when you get further into that, we ought to have another conversation. That that would be a winner. I think everyone would love to hear that. And <laughs> yeah. so, so Meg, thank you so much for this time together. This was really exciting. And, and I, I think you so successfully communicated the myriad things that keep you going and, and the energy that you bring to all those things is really quite admirable. Thank you so um, much. 
Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.